Chuck Berry made the electric guitar the central instrument in most of the time in popular music and rock and roll for sure. Uh, he took it from the blues, uh, brought it into rock and roll when, when, when the saxophone and the piano were as much a part of rhythm and blues as the electric guitar was, he made that the central solo instrument. You know, we talk about singer-songwriters being this almost 1960s or 70s uh, style uh, that people like Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell popularized. But Chuck Berry was writing his own songs in the mid-1950s and was the first rock and roll star to do that. Elvis wasn't writing his own songs. Others, Little Richard and many others were, but Chuck had huge hits with those songs. So that's important. Hey, it's the official tapes. This is a Grateful Dead radio program where we play the official releases that have been released out of the Grateful Dead's vault. It is a radio program. It airs on about over 80 radio stations around the globe, and this one was a good one. My name is R.J. Smith. My book is Chuck Berry and American Life. When it came to the radio program, uh, we had R.J. kind of guest host and play Grateful Dead as Jerry Garcia band covers of Chuck Berry songs like uh, You Can Never Tell, Johnny Be Good, Around and Around, Neighbor, Neighbor, Let It Rock, and Promised Land. I love talking about Chuck and uh, in fresh context for me, too. So this is great. Uh, thank you for having me on. In 2021, the Grateful Dead released a box set. Listen to the River, St. Louis, 71, 72, and 73. The box set is chock full of Chuck Berry tunes and also great tidbits and liner notes about the Grateful Dead's history with St. Louis. For instance, the 121071 show was St. Louis's first live stereo broadcast on KADI radio. The radio there was clearly amazing, and it was a huge radio town. And Chuck Berry learned so much uh, that he, he used in his music through what he heard on the radio in St. Louis. Throughout this feature, you're going to hear R.J. Smith talking about some of the unique similarities that the Grateful Dead had with Chuck Berry. For instance, their approach to performing on stage, not necessarily similarity, actually kind of a complete opposite approaches, but uh, still some unique improv uh, tactics as well. And then the uh, Grateful Dead took a hiatus in 1974 for about 18 months. Kind of a similar situation happening with uh, Chuck Berry. He did take time off, but it wasn't because of his choice. He actually went to prison. So some interesting uh, what happens to artists and a band that take time off and then they go back on the road. And then also the success, commercial success, that The Grateful Dead had and Chuck Berry. So let's get into it. Originally, I was going to call the book You Never Can Tell because that was a Chuck Berry song and his life took a lot of turns and there was a lot of things I was trying to tell people that maybe they didn't know about Chuck. I find him really interesting because uh, he wrote about stuff that he didn't know about firsthand. He was not a teenager, but he was in his 30s when he was writing many of his biggest hits about teenage America. He hadn't graduated from high school when he wrote those songs. So he was imagining this thing as much as living this thing. And that seems really interesting to me to sort of 
talk about a true artist who is reaching beyond his own experience. But at the end of the day, it was it had so much to do with American history, I guess, uh, in, in terms of civil rights history, in terms of the history of rock and roll and how that changed American culture. So it just seemed like that gave it a, a proper weight somehow to call it an American story. If this had come out five or 10 years before, it, it would have been written in a different way. And I might not have known everything that I kind of learned about him. Certainly in his lifetime, people wouldn't have felt as comfortable talking about some parts of their encounters with him uh, as they did after he had passed. Some people are all good or mostly good, uh, whatever good means. Chuck Berry had a, he had a huge positive good impact on America, on the world. But at the same time, he could be a truly um, not so good human being. And I wanted to be able to think about both sides of that because most of us are like that, or I think, or many of us are like that. And, and a lot of great music or movies or books that I like are written by people who weren't always so great. So I wanted to kind of think about that. So it was an interesting subject that kept me motivated for the five years it took me to write it. Chuck grew up in St. Louis, in a black community in St. Louis, in a time when things were really sorted out, segregated. He was born there and he lived, when he wasn't on the road, most of the time he lived just outside of St. Louis. So it, it seemed to me like to understand him, I had to think about that place a lot. And it's right on the Mississippi, it's both part of the North in some ways and, and part of the South. In, in other ways, they call it the gateway to the West. They have the big gateway arch. So it's kind of symbolically, and in a lot of ways, the, the middle of the country. And I think that says something about how Chuck Berry could maybe speak to so many different kinds of people. One person coming up in one place at a given time can have such a huge impact on so many people. So uh, how, how one person from modest means could have such a great impact on all of us. person, of course, invented or created rock and roll, but to my way of thinking, he had the best blueprint for it. And his ideas for how to get this music across to people really uh, connected in a way that almost nobody else's did. He showed the way to how uh, rock stars could behave <laughs> and how they could present themselves to the mass audience. He loved being on the stage. He was comfortable. He loved working a crowd. He loved showing that he was having a good time. So the rock star was somebody who had fun on stage and liked being popular, liked selling a lot of records, liked being a national phenomenon, a global phenomenon. He made those early hits in his first few years of touring, he had a really great band with a piano player named Johnny Johnson that he loved to play with. And over time, 
For lots of reasons, I think for financial reasons, he made more when he didn't have to hire, pay the musicians to, the club would pay the musicians. So what he did was he often over his career would show up in a town and they would have already, and he would have had a contract, pretty basic contract, but one of the things that it called for whatever town he appeared in was that the promoter would put together a band that would play Chuck, that had to know Chuck Berry's music and would be able to play it when Chuck Berry came on the stage with them. So a lot of towns, a lot of places, you know, there are generations of musicians who grew up hearing Chuck Berry music and they're like, oh my gosh, yes, we'll play, we'll play with our hero, Chuck Berry. And they wanted that experience of connecting with him, but Chuck Berry wanted to get in, play a show and get out of there often. So, they would meet just before uh, it was time to go on often. They didn't have a sound check. They didn't necessarily, they didn't have a rehearsal for sure. And, you know, a, a story that lots of musicians have told over the years is how they met Chuck Berry and they said, well, Mr. Berry, we're your biggest fans. Um, what songs, you, you, we don't have, a, you didn't give us a set list. What songs are we playing tonight? And he would smile and say, Chuck Berry songs. <laughs> And you would get on stage with him and he'd say, just watch my, listen to what I'm doing and watch my foot. And that was, that was pretty much it, you know? So he would play a riff and you'd jump in if you could uh, and, and follow along for the ride. And sometimes it could be great. It could be because there were a lot of great musicians that were dying to play with Chuck. And sometimes though, it could be pretty rocky because Chuck wasn't in the mood or uh, he didn't like the drummer. He would fire a drummer live and call out to the audience and he'd say, okay, are there any kids out there that know how to play better drums than this guy does? So anytime he wanted to, he could have a great show for you. If you could hold on to the roller coaster, it could be amazing. And you could really learn something maybe, or just have a great story to tell. The, you could pick up the, audience, the, the energy from the audience for sure. You had to be really living in the moment and watching what he was doing and, and trying to read his mind where he was going to go next. So you couldn't, you couldn't just phone it in, that's for sure. He had a contract that he went on stage at like 10 o'clock and he played for an hour and your opening act or the acts before you on the festival, which happens all the time, play longer, then Chuck would look at that as being a voiding of the contract. And, and he would go to the promoter and demand more money since he had kept, he was there ready to play in his mind and certainly legally it makes sense. There's a famous story. Uh, he he played a show in Florida, uh, and he the opening band played too long, and he came out to the stage, and he and he and he didn't have his guitar with him, and he wasn't playing. He he talked to the crowd. He said, "You know, great to see you all. I, I wonder. I'm really confused here because." And he pulled out a ticket for that show in his pocket, and he and he read it. He says, "Because the ticket here says Chuck Berry's playing Saturday night." And then he looked at his watch and he said, but it's Sunday morning now. So 
I'm, I'm really confused about that. And, and basically, he, he got the promoters to pay him more money for avoiding the contract. He, he brought them out on this show. He had the band play. He still wasn't playing, but he had the band play uh, some songs, and he made the promoters come out and dance in front of the audience to show who was really in charge, I guess. And he was at that moment because he wanted to, the audience wanted to hear Chuck Berry. He pushed the limits a lot, like few people would dare. He liked, uh, well, I mean, look, he, he came up in the 50s and in, into the 60s, of course, and, and we're not done yet, where for a black man to be with a white woman was illegal. <laughs> so he looked at that and he, I think, he looked at it as a personal challenge. So he liked to be seen with white women. He liked to be with white women. And uh, he liked to be with whoever he wanted to be with. And, and he looked at that as one more time when society and people were telling him not to do things uh, that they didn't want him to do. And he looked at that as a kind of a challenge as much as um, don't go to this part of town might be a challenge to some people or don't break the speed limit might be a kind of challenge. He, he looked at people telling him no and, and tried to find a way to, to get to yes. <laughs> so uh, with some things like when he's butting heads with club owners about pay, it's one kind of disagreement. But when you're butting heads with the United States government uh, about who you're traveling across the country with, that's a whole different thing. And he went to prison for violating something called the Mann Act he, he, he traveled from, from uh, Texas, from Juarez, Mexico and Texas, back to St. Louis in the late 50s with a, with a 14-year-old woman, a girl, 14. They, they put him in jail for that uh, and prison for several years. And so Chuck, who went to prison from about 61 to 1963, uh, he came back and you know, in that time period, the Beatles had come out. The Rolling Stones were just coming out. The Beach Boys had a hit rewriting a Chuck Berry song. They were just getting launched. So he he went into prison in 1961 as, you know, this, this sort of founding father figure. And by the time he came out, there were all these bands and artists who were influenced by him who are in terms of sales and global reach uh, transcending him but also paying tribute to him. So it was a lot for him to wrestle with because he just wanted to pick up where he left off and a lot had changed by then, even just two years. So he tried a lot to, to shape himself and, and write songs in new ways. And he wrote some amazing songs after that, but it was not easy for sure. Take a break as a as an artist as a musician. You take a, take a break, or you have a break forced upon you. In Chuck's case, and uh, and and so much can change when you come back. There was a different experience after that for him. Uh, rock and roll was just getting going in the late fifties, and it was um, a lim It was growing and huge, but it was a limited uh, market. 
And, and just a few years later, with, you know, radio spreading the word around the world with TV shows like American Bandstand and Hullabaloo and others, um, when he got out just a couple years later, it was like um, not this um, one flavor uh, of music. It was like the dominant sound in America. And he was able to be a, a role player in that when he came out, for sure. There was much more money to be made if you could keep creating hits. My Ding-A-Ling in 1972 was his biggest hit of all. It was huge. It was funny and fun. And it wasn't like the like a fast, bluesy rock and roll song like so many of Chuck's songs were. It was a it was an informal sing-along with a huge audience on the hit version, uh, shouting back the lyrics to Chuck, and he's going back and forth with them. He's like pulling stuff out of his head and creating new lyrics on the spot and getting people to sing them back. It's definitely more free than Chuck usually got in a show where he liked, he was a control, he liked to have some control over things. For a lot of shows, he kept a, a tight hand on how long a song would go on and, and who how long a solo would go on and stuff. Uh, but my ding-a-ling is different and it showed that side of him for sure. Chuck Berry did not like to hear people tell him what he couldn't do. He would try to prove you wrong. He opened a nightclub in St. Louis in the late 50s with an integrated clientele at a time when St. Louis was pretty informally segregated. He opened a kind of like a country club or like a park outside of St. Louis that was open to all. You could go fishing there. You could hear concerts there at picnics. And that was an integrated thing that gave him a lot of grief. Uh, local uh, cops gave him a lot of grief for that in ways that were that made him seem kind of like a civil rights oriented figure. And in some ways that made him seem like a rabble rouser, both one and the other. Uh, Chuck Berry pushed the limits. <laughs> ¶¶ 